This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, Bill, I just want to thank you and your church for having my wife, Julie, and I and the team here this weekend. Uh, My heart is just overflowing. So I'm just going to read what I put in my notes. Well, first, open your Bibles to Psalm 40. (laughs) That's what we're going to be heading into today. Paul begins his letter to the Thessalonians with these words, which we are actually preaching through at home in uh, Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. We're preaching through 1 Thessalonians right now, kind of, except we interrupted it for an Advent series. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I've had the joy of partnering in the gospel with Cornerstone Church of Knoxville since the early 90s. I was out to dinner with Bill and Sherry and uh, Zach and Sarah last night and uh, we were just reminiscing about the first time that we ministered together. And it was a singles retreat in Fontana, Tennessee. You all are familiar with Fontana? <laughs> Booming metropolis. And we, uh, we ministered together and that w- somewhere in the early 90s. So it's, it's been almost 30 years. And during that time, during that, those 30 years, this is what I've seen. You're a work of faith your labor of love, and your steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that some of you are newer and are standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before you, but you are learning the same things and showing the same example. But many of you have been here for a large portion of that time, and you model what Paul saw in the Thessalonians. And I know just you're following the teaching example of Bill and the other pastors and others in this congregation. And I just want to say, I thank God for you. You know, you are not a church in isolation. You are a church that is cared for. You are a church that is loved. You are a church that is prayed for. And you are making much of Jesus and the gospel. And so I thank God for you, and it's a real joy to be here. I guess I should preach the message at some point. (laughs) We've referenced already this morning that uh, we're in the season of Advent. This is actually the second Sunday of uh, what Christians celebrate throughout the world in the season of Advent. Advent, if you didn't know, is taken from a Latin word that means coming. Scholars say that early on, Advent was the time of preparation for new converts before they were baptized. That was their Advent. But by the 6th century, Christians started tying Advent to the coming of Christ. We're waiting for the coming of Christ. And actually, it wasn't until the Middle Ages that Advent was explicitly linked to the first coming of Christ, to Bethlehem as a baby. And today... 
The season of Advent reminds us that even as God's people waited for the coming of the Messiah to deliver them, so we wait for the coming of the Messiah again. And that will be a deliverance like no other. So as we were talking about what I'd speak on, providentially, I had just spoken on this psalm in Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, and it just seems so fitting because Psalm 40 is a psalm about waiting. And at the end of 2020, I think we are more familiar with waiting than we would ever want to be. Uh, we are waiting for a vaccine. We were waiting for a stimulus check, maybe waiting for a job, maybe just waiting for life to return to some kind of normalcy. We're waiting. So, Psalm 40 is a psalm about waiting, but it's not just about waiting. It's, it's about learning to wait well, because there's a difference between waiting and waiting well. And Psalm 40 is about celebrating God's character and faithfulness, even as we're waiting to be delivered again. And God has used this psalm more in my life more times than I can count to reveal his character to me and to, to remind me of this truth. God's faithfulness to deliver us from trials in the past enables us to praise him through trials in the present. I'll be saying that a number of times in this message. I'm going to say it again right now. God's faithfulness to deliver us from trials in the past enables us to praise him through trials in the present. Being delivered from a trial is a great feeling. And we're going to, we're going to read about that in Psalm 40. But that feeling is often overshadowed by the longing and pain and discouragement and darkness that can accompany waiting to be delivered again. And so here's what Psalm 40 is going to help us see. Actually, here's what the Holy Spirit is going to help us see. The trials we are currently facing, the waiting we're currently experiencing, it's not meant to destroy us. It's meant to direct our thoughts and our hearts to the only one who's worthy of our trust. So may God's Spirit direct our hearts to Him as we read and study Psalm 40 together. This is the Word of God. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. 
In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O oh Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O oh Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor, dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Father, open our eyes to see all that you want us to see of your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ as we study these words together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at this psalm in three sections. Deliverance remembered, deliverance responded to, and deliverance anticipated. Verses 1 through 5, deliverance remembered, begins, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. It's what he did. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. The psalm literally begins with these words, waiting, I waited. Waiting, I waited. A lot of waiting going on. But it was an expectant waiting. He wasn't just hanging around, just kind of, yeah, what am I going to do? Check my Facebook feed, look at Twitter, look at something. I, I just know what to do. He was expectant. He was thinking God was going to do something. He wasn't distracted. He wasn't just holding on. He knew that God was doing something, and he was waiting for him to do it, to see it. David looked at his own resources and came up with nothing, so he placed his hope for deliverance fully 
on the Lord. Now, he doesn't tell us what his problems were, which is actually a good thing. We just know it's a pit and it's a miry bog. And the fact that we don't know exactly what he was going through is really helpful because that means we can identify with him. We can put our pit and our miry bog in this situation and say, okay, I'm good with this. God can deliver me out of my pits and my miry bogs too. And you know what? It's probably multiple pits and multiple miry bogs that we're waiting to be delivered from or we have been delivered from. So David was waiting to be delivered from these things and you know what? His time of waiting came to an end. God delivered him. And the result was a song. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth. Song of praise to our God. Now a new song you've probably heard doesn't mean a newly composed song necessarily. It means a song that's a, a fresh response to a fresh demonstration of God's power and mercy. So it could be a couple who have been trying for years to have a child, years of waiting, waiting, longing, crying out, and all of a sudden, one morning, they take the pregnancy test, and it is positive. It's someone who has been trapped in a recurring sin for years, and through prayer and counsel, God's Word and the Holy Spirit, realizing one day, doesn't rule them anymore. It's having a hip or joint replaced and not experiencing chronic pain anymore. And you know what you want to do in those moments? You know what you want to do? You want to sing. You want to say, oh, this is so good. You don't even have to have a good voice. You don't have to sing like Bill. Even Bill wants to sing. It's, that's just what happens when we're delivered. Old songs take on new meaning. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. You say, yeah, I know what he can do. He did this in my life. My song when enemies surround me. Yeah, you enemies, just get out of here. I got a song. God's my trust. He's the one who's going to deliver me. And he did. And this one, no power of hell, no scheme of man. You know, we sing that song so, so often. When you have freshly been delivered from something, you're thinking, yeah, right. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We want to sing. It's not hard to sing when we've been delivered. We're on the other side of deliverance. And that actually is God's plan. Because he wants others to hear about his deliverance in our lives, his kindness to us, resulting in more songs of praise. The Lord put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. They'll see me singing and they'll say, oh, this, this must be good. Whatever happened to them, that, this must be good. Maybe I, maybe I should do this. So, so David takes What's happened to him, he reflects on it, and he turns it, he turns it into an admonition. Verse 4. Hey, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. When David needed help and deliverance, he could have turned to his own resources. I mean, he was a powerful dude. He had dealt with wolves as a shepherd. He had defeated Goliath. He had led armies. So he had street cred, but he didn't trust in himself. 
He trusted in the Lord. He waited patiently for the Lord. He walked in humility and trusted that God would deliver him. So, he encourages us. He says, be, be humble. Trust the Lord and you'll be blessed. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. And blessed basically means being happy. So David is telling us here how to be happy. How can you be happy? You can trust the Lord. That's how you can be happy. Because there are a lot of voices around us telling us to do something else. There are a lot of paths we can be tempted to take when we need deliverance. And whether it looks like this or not, it's the path of the proud. The path of those who go astray after a lie or after idols, as the word here implies. And the world is feeding us those kinds of lies incessantly. We tell ourselves those kind of lies. Right now, we know what we're hearing? Science will save us. Education will deliver us. Drugs will fix what's wrong with us. More money. That's what we need. More money will make everything right. Or political power is the answer. We can save ourselves. We just need to work harder. Lies, lies, lies. Make the Lord your trust. Because he's the only one who is trustworthy. And as David reminds us in the next, next verse, there is no one like him. I love this verse. This verse has spoken to me so many times. Verse five, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. God's Wondrous deeds in our lives aren't random acts of kindness. He's not spinning a wheel up there. You know, when, when occasionally our number shows up. Okay, I can do something good for Zach today. That's not how God's dealing with us. He, and he doesn't just add up his wondrous deeds and thoughts. Here's one. Okay, next month I'm going to give you another one. Just one a month. That's your allotment. You need to be content with that. I'm God, you're not. You just need to be content. It's not what the Bible says. What's he doing with his wondrous deeds and his thoughts, which are really his plans? That word means plans. What's he doing with them? He's multiplying them. Here's one. Here's five more. You know, and here's 125 more. And here's 625 more. And as far as my math will take me right now. It's multiplying. It's multiplying. Who is like this? That's why he says in the middle of it. None can compare with you. I memorized this psalm a few years ago. And that, that, that verse, that line, none can compare with you, I would often forget it. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous teaching and your thoughts toward us. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more than can be told. But David sticks that right in. None can compare with you. Who is like this? Who is constantly thinking of ways to bless us? 
care for us, encourage us, sustain us, deliver us. You know, as parents, Julie and I, we have six kids, expecting grandchildren number 20 and 21 right now. We had dreams for our kids as they were growing up. What hobbies they'd enjoy, what sports they'd play, what instrument they'd like. Didn't always work out the way I wanted it to. What kind of person they'd marry, what they'd do for a living. We love thinking about their future. And now we're thinking about the future for our grandkids. Multiply that exponentially and you have a, something of an idea of what God is doing for our lives. Before your parents even met, he thought through who they would be. He thought, where you would, thought through where you would be born, the color of your hair, how tall you'd be, what your voice would sound like your strengths and your weaknesses. He planned when you would first roll over, when you would take your first step, when you would say your first word. His wondrous plans and deeds and thoughts include choosing us, calling us, opening our hearts to the gospel, justifying us, adopting us into his family, changing us into the likeness of his son, and making sure that love and mercy will follow us all our days until we see his face. And right now, as we sit in this room listening to this message, you know what he's doing? He's multiplying his wondrous deeds and thoughts for each of his children. There's no one like him. Charles Spurgeon expressed it like this. How sweet to be outdone, overcome, and overwhelmed by the astonishing grace of the Lord our God. When we can't see any possible way out of our present situation, you know what God is doing? He's multiplying His wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. How should we respond to this kind of love and mercy and power? Well, in the next five verses, David tells us how we should respond. Don't you love the Word of God? It just gives us all the steps. So this is point two, deliverance responded to, verses 6 through 10. After a time of deliverance, the Israelites would typically have responded with some kind of sacrifice. There were different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Might have been a thank offering to express gratefulness or a free will offering in response to a vow they made while they were waiting to be delivered. Might have been a burnt offering to express Total commitment to God. What kind of sacrifice would God want when he answers our prayers for rescue? Here's what David says in verse 6. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. I have read this psalm for decades. And when I would get to that spot, I'd always think, that is so weird. Why, after God had set up the sacrificial system, is <laughs> saying here, I don't delight in these sacrifices. 
I don't require these sacrifices. And these, what David mentions, are all the kinds of sacrifices that God had commanded in the law. So it can sound like God's changing his mind, like he's moving the target. No, he's not doing that, because God does not change. God ordained the sacrificial system as a gracious way for his people to draw near to him without being consumed by his holiness. The sacrifice was consumed, not them. But sacrifices weren't, their, weren't his main concern. His main concern was the hearts of his people. He wants our hearts and our obedience. So while public displays of devotion are important, without the heart, they're worthless. And so that's what that unusual phrase refers to. You have given me an open ear. David is saying, I stand ready to hear whatever you have to say, Lord. I'm ready to do it. You just speak the word. I'm doing it. You say jump. I say how high. And in the New Testament, that phrase, you have given me an open ear, is translated from the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, as this phrase, a body you have prepared for me. Which makes it clear that you know, God opening our ears means more than simply listening. It, it means a desire to fully obey whatever is on God's heart. So in response to being delivered, this, this is what David says. I'm ready to do whatever you say. Here I am. Send me whatever you want. I'm, I'm yours. And that's what God loves. He wants a relationship rooted in his promises and completed in our obedience. So David continues in verse 7, keeps drilling the point home. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. In the scroll of the book it is written of me has two meanings. First, David recognizes he's accountable, even as the king, he's accountable to God's law. But second, he knows that God has sovereignly appointed him for good works. He's confident that God is wisely governing his life. He's not someone that we want to rebel against. God's commands are good. So he says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. And that's the natural and appropriate response of any godly person who has been delivered or needs to be delivered. And you often see it in the Psalms. As you read through the Psalms, you'll see when someone wants to be delivered, needs to be delivered, has been delivered, they'll say, Lord, I want to obey you. Psalm 27, 11 is an example of that. It says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. I have enemies all around me. Teach me what you want. Show me the way I should go. God doesn't deliver us so we can do whatever we want. He delivers us so that we might love him with all our heart and obey him. He's looking not only for grateful lips, which you guys are very good at, by the way, but grateful lives, which we're also good at. But that doesn't mean that what we say with our lips is unimportant, as the next two verses show. Verse 9 and 10. He says, I'm going to obey you. But then he says this, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you own, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. 
I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. That is just a torrent of praise towards God. And one commentator says, says this about that passage. I love this. It may seem on a superficial observation as if David used here too many words. But they will judge quite otherwise who understand the natural coldness of the human heart, its lukewarmness in the praise of God, its forgetfulness and unthankfulness and the inclination of the lazy mouth to silence. Oh, I love that. Whoever E.W. Hengstenberg is, thank you. When we've been delivered, we don't want to have lazy mouths. We want, we have news to share and sing about. And I find it far too easy when God has, has delivered me from some trial, maybe I received an unexpected financial blessing, a, a, a tense relationship has been resolved, I've completed a task I've been anxious about for months. At the end of that, when it's done, I immediately start worrying and grumbling about the next problem. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, I'm like clockwork. Julie will tell you, you don't have to shake your head so strongly. Rather than taking extended time for praise and gratefulness and, you know, these, these things here, telling the glad news of deliverance, not, con- not hiding his deliverance in my heart, not concealing his, his deliverance from the great congregation, speaking of his steadfast love and faithfulness, I go right to grumbling and anxiety. I have a lazy mouth for praise, not so much for grumbling. And whenever we do that, we rob God of glory. And we prevent others from seeing his character. This is what commentator Alan Ross says about this divine intervention without the response of declarative praise destroys God's design. God has plans for his people and those plans provide amazing acts on their half. Through it all, God desires expressions of praise and thanksgiving because praise will edify and change others. So often we just look to the deliverance. It's kind of self-centered, isn't it? God, just deliver me. Deliver me. Not deliver me from this. Not deliver me from this. I'm tired of waiting. Deliver me. Deliver. God says, you're missing my design. I'm delivering you so you can see how great I am and you can let others know how great I am. And that's exactly what we do on Sunday morning. It's one of the reasons we gather, so we can remind each other through our expressions of praise and thanksgiving how steadfast God's love is and how faithful he is. And so we encourage and build up one another. God's faithfulness to deliver us from trials in the past gives us confidence to praise him through trials in the present. Moving to our third point, takes us from responding to God's deliverance to anticipating it. Verses 11 through 17. David moves from proclamation to prayer. Verse 11. As for you, O Lord, 
you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. You know why David could say earlier, I will not restrain my lips, as you know, O Lord. Because he knew this. He knew you will not restrain your mercy from me. There is no sin, no extenuating circumstance, no situation, no failing, no misunderstanding that can cause God, when he's set on showing you mercy, to withhold his mercy from you. He is rich in mercy. Do you know what it means for God to be understrained in his mercy? I don't think we do. So I'm going to borrow from uh, Dane Ortland from his book, Gentle and Lowly, as he comments on Ephesians 2.4, which talks about God being rich in mercy. He says this, what does it mean for God to be rich in mercy? It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shock. At how impoverished a view of his mercy rich heart we had. I believe we're going to do that. No one's going to stand before Jesus and say, you know, I thought you were, you were good, but you're not as good as I thought you were. Charles Spurgeon said that. Typical Spurgeon. Our thoughts of the Lord's mercy will never be too great. He will not restrain his mercy from us. And so knowing that enables David to stare his current situation in the face and his current situation is not good because he needs mercy now, verse 12, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. He said, I know you're not going to restrain your mercy from me. So, by the way, I just want to make you aware of a little something I'm going through right now. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I can't see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. It sounds like David is right back where he started at the beginning of the psalm. Only he hasn't been delivered yet. And this time, his problems are clearly connected to his own sins. My iniquities have overtaken me. He is in a pit and a miry bog of his own construction. But you know what? The Lord's mercy is so great that he rescues us even when the pits and the bogs of our, of our own making. <laughs> he is so good. So David cries out, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. 
Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, like they just can't wait to catch us when we fall. So while David owns his current responsibility in the trial, he's aware he has enemies. And you know, we have enemies too. People who want to hurt us, people who want to slander us, catch us at our worst. Somebody might be coming to mind right now. Somebody from the past might be coming to mind. But you know what? Even if there's no one coming to mind, there are many who stand against the advance of the gospel and the prosperity of the church of Christ and the authority and sufficiency of God's word and God himself. So if you stand for any of those things, they stand against you. And while those enemies may take many forms, there's one behind all of them, and that is the accuser of the brethren, Satan, the father of lies, and our eternal foe. And we can use these words with passion against him. May all his plans be brought to nothing. May, they, may, may all those who follow in his steps be appalled because of their shame. Because God's going to turn things around. And in verse 16, David wisely turns from his circumstances and what others are saying about him to what we should be saying about the Lord. Isn't that a good, good turn? <laughs> I'm so concerned about what people are saying about me, what, what, what they're thinking about me, how they're talking about me. Why don't you worry or be concerned about what you should be saying about the Lord? Because he says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. How can we be expected to say great is the Lord continually when life just constantly throwing us curveballs? I mean, this year more than any, it's like, really? <laughs> I mean, just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Great is the Lord. I mean, we just keep changing plans. We're going to have this event now. No, we're not. It's going to be then. No, it's not. It's going to be then. Oh, this is coming. Nope, sorry. It's not coming. It's coming then. No, nope, sorry. It's coming then. How can we say great is the Lord? Here's how. Because our joy doesn't rest in getting specific prayers answered. It doesn't rest there. God does answer prayer, but our joy doesn't rest there. It comes from knowing that God has revealed who he is in past deliverances, and he does not change. He does not change. We can't view God through our circumstances. We have to view our circumstances through God's faithfulness, because God's faithfulness to deliver us from trials in the past enables us to praise him through trials in the present. And we may not know exactly what wondrous thoughts and deeds the Lord is cooking up for us, but we can be sure. He's always writing new chapters. He's always writing new stories. He doesn't drop his pen, pull away from the keyboard and say, I'm done. I'm done with this. They're, they're like hopeless. I can't do this. Oh, no. He's, I love this. I love this. He's working up plans and deeds and thoughts and He's always given us fresh reasons to declare 
his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So we can say continually, great is the Lord. And I love the way Christopher Ash reminds us, we praise not because the present is easy, but because the future is glorious. We praise not because the present is easy, but because the future is glorious. And as David concludes this psalm, we find him anticipating deliverance once again. He says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Praising God's character, faithfulness, and steadfast love doesn't automatically remove our trials. And sometimes we secretly hope it will. Lord, I'm I'm doing what you told me to do right now. Praise you. Praise the Lord. Great is the Lord. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We praise you. We thank you. Your turn. Change, change things. Change things. God doesn't work that way. But with fresh conviction, we can say, I am poor and needy, but this is what I know. So I need to know the Lord takes thought from me. And the Lord's thoughts about you are not random or passing or questionable. They are intentional, permanent, and good. And we know because of that that we can say with certainty, great is the Lord. So the Lord's deliverance is to be remembered It's to be responded to, and it's something we can anticipate. But I don't doubt that there are some of us who are listening, who are here this morning potentially, who are so discouraged, so immersed in your pain or loss, or you've waited so long that it's hard to remember ways God delivered you in the past. What if calling them to mind doesn't encourage your soul. It just makes you aware of how distant they are. Good news. We have a deliverance that David could only point to. And he does just that in the middle of this psalm. Verses 6 through 8. God led the writer of Hebrews to quote these verses and put them in the mouth of Jesus, speaking of his incarnation. So we read in Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Those words came from Jesus' mouth before they came from David's mouth. David wanted to walk in God's ways, but he failed. He was immoral, he was an adulterer, he was a liar, he was a murderer, and we will fail too. We will strive to walk in God's ways, but we'll fail. David pointed us to a Savior who would never fail. And who would one day say with us, 
I am poor and needy. And he's truly the only one who can say, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. It was written in the book of him over and over that he would be a descendant of David, that he would be born to a virgin in Bethlehem. God's law was within his heart as he healed the sick and freed the captives. And even as he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, he delighted to do God's will as he was crucified with criminals, forsaken by God and pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And it was written that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb and rise from the dead. Jesus has done what no sacrifice could do. And because of his perfect humility and obedience, whenever we struggle to feel God's love in our present trials, we can look back beyond the times he's delivered us to Calvary where God's love for us was on full display and his delivering us from our sin and wrath was fully achieved. Because Jesus delighted in doing his Father's will every moment of his life, we can be certain that even when we fail to do that will, we are never out of God's sight, never away from his presence, and never absent from his thoughts. We can also be certain that in the midst of interminable waits and wanderings, losses and longings, disappointments and delays, God is setting the stage for a mind-boggling, joy-expanding, never-ending celebration around His table at the marriage supper of the Lamb where all sin and pain and death and waiting will be over. And more than anything else on earth, more than anything we can imagine, that, brothers and sisters, is worth waiting for. Father, we thank you that you have given us hope in the midst of our trials. You have given us many deliverances. We look back and we see again and again how you have delivered us. We thank you. But we thank you most of all for the greatest deliverance in Jesus Christ from our sin, from hell, from your wrath from the grave, from the bondage to our will. And we rest in the assurance that you do not change, that you're multiplying your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us, and we can trust you. Because of Jesus, our great Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.